Man, it is really awesome to be able to stand here and to follow such an amazing time of worship, right? We have so much to be grateful for. You know, over the break, during that Christmas season and New Year's and all that kind of time when a lot of our activities were, were on, uh, on slowdown here at the church, I realized when we came back together, I realized how much I missed us being together. This past Wednesday night was fun as we were able to get back together on Wednesday night in the middle of the week and, and do things together. But I'm so grateful um, for uh, all of you for the way that you sing and the way you participate in worship and the way you help to create a worshipful environment by your attitudes. You're a part of that. Um, but it's also an awesome thing to be a part of a church where we have a, a, a worship pastor and a worship team uh, that are so focused on leading us to the throne of glory. And so thank you, David, and the team for doing such. And Mike and our elders, we're very grateful um, for our elders who also contribute to that. And so I feel like I'm just a small part of that this morning. We have life group leaders. We have people who are serving all over the place today. And I'm a small part of that, but I'm very grateful for the opportunity to be able um, to speak and share this morning from God's Word uh, uh, I do love the book of Exodus, uh, and so I'm excited to be able to keep us kind of in the book of Exodus today. You're going to have to bear with me, but we're going to go through. We're going to look at some related to Exodus. Last week, if you were not with us, Chad kicked off our journey through the Old Testament book of Exodus. Uh, we talked about how Exodus last week, uh, how it's a continuation of the book of Genesis. Uh, we talked about the themes of redemption and salvation and deliverance that run throughout the book of Exodus. We also noted... Uh, that the book of Exodus is ultimately a book about God. It's not a book about Moses. It's not a book about the Egyptians or about Pharaoh or even the Israelites. It's a book ultimately about God. The focus is on God. And so we should keep our eyes open um, as we read through this book um, to see what we can learn about God as, uh, as we continue through it during the course of this year. We also, last week, talked about the value of life through God's eyes. And uh, this is a theme that we're going to pick up again next week uh, when Chad returns. Uh, and so last week, Chad walked us through all the details of chapter 1 of the book of Exodus, verse by verse. Um, next week, uh, we'll start chapter 2, and Chad will lead us through the first part of chapter 2. So today, again, I want us to look at chapter 1, okay? So go back to Exodus chapter 1, um, but today we're going to do it a little different. Last week, Chad did a verse-by-verse -verse analysis, um, kind of walked us through it, and today I want to take a step back and look at chapter 1 from a slightly different angle. Uh, I was talking with one of our college students I love hanging out with and talking to college students. And uh, so we were talking, uh, a couple of us, last week about different ways to study the Bible. Uh, and um, one of those ways is by doing a verse-by-verse, -verse, very slow, careful analysis, a dig through each uh, part of Scripture and every word and every phrase and all the different kind of things. And so you can dig, dig very deeply there. But another way is to read larger swaths of Scripture to gain an overview that will hopefully inform that detailed interpretation as you read verse by verse. And so I want to encourage you to do both of those, but reading and considering the whole of Scripture or the entirety of the book in, of a book in Scripture can help us to identify things like the tone and the themes and other key elements 
that are contained in those individual verses. And so, as I started my preparation this week, um, looking at the book of Exodus, and specifically at chapter 1, I I chose to do that from kind of a bird's-eye point of view, um, looking at some of the overarching themes that might help us as we seek to interpret it and understand this history um, as it relates to our lives and uh, what we can gather from that. So, uh, let's read together in Exodus chapter 1. Hopefully you've already turned there. Uh, but in Exodus chapter 1, it says, And these are the names of the sons of Israel who came to Egypt with Jacob, each with his household, Reuben, and Simeon, Levi, and Judah, Issachar, Zebulun, and Benjamin, Dan and Naphtali, Gad and Asher. All the descendants of Jacob were 70 persons. Joseph was already in Egypt. Then Joseph died, and all of his brothers, and all that generation. But the people of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly. They multiplied, and they grew exceedingly strong, so that the land was filled with them. Verse 8, Now there arose a new king over Egypt who did not know Joseph. And he said to his people, Behold, the people of Israel are too, mighty, too many and too mighty for us. Come, let us deal shrewdly with them, lest they multiply. And if war breaks out, they join our enemies and fight against us and escape from the land. Therefore, they set taskmasters over them to afflict them with heavy burdens. They built for Pharaoh store cities, Pithom and Ramses. But the more they were oppressed the more they multiplied, and the more they spread abroad. And the Egyptians were in dread of the people of Israel. So they ruthlessly made the people of Israel work as slaves and made their lives bitter with hard service in mortar and brick and in all kinds of work in the field. In all their work, they were ruthlessly made to work as slaves. Then the king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, one of whom was named Shifra and the other Puah, when you serve as midwife to the Hebrew women and see them on the birth stool, if it is a son, you shall kill him. But if it is a daughter, she shall live. But the midwives feared God, and they did not do as the king of Egypt commanded them, but let the male children live. So the king of Egypt called the midwives and said to them, Why have you done this and let the male children live? The midwives said to Pharaoh, Because the Hebrew women are not like the Egyptian women, for they are vigorous and give birth before the midwife comes to them. So God dealt well with the midwives, and the people multiplied and grew very strong. And because the midwives feared God, he gave them families. Then Pharaoh commanded all his people, every son that is born to the Hebrews, you shall cast into the Nile, but you shall let every daughter live. So one of the first things that struck me as I read this chapter uh, was the incredible hardships of God's people, the Israelites. In this chapter alone, we see great suffering, and that led me to start asking some questions. When you're studying scripture, I want to encourage you to write down questions that come to mind as you are reading. Things like, why did that happen? Or where was that located? Or what else was going on in the world at that time? 
Make notes and think about things like that because it will inspire you to dig deeper into Scripture and begin to really understand what is going on and why is going on there. And so Exodus 1.1 says, These are the names of the sons of Israel who came to Egypt with Jacob, each with his own household. So one of the very first questions that came to my mind was, why did the Israelites go to Egypt in the first place? Well, to answer that question... We go back to the book of Genesis to discover the impetus that caused Jacob's family to immigrate to a foreign land. And in reading just a few chapters back, now we're going to look at a few places in Genesis. You may just want to jot those down. You can flip back over to them if you want to. Sometimes we'll look at specific verses. Sometimes I'll just reference chapters, but we'll look at some different things. If you go back to chapter 41 uh, in Genesis, it reveals to us that there was a widespread famine that was affecting this part of the world for seven years. During this time, crops failed and people literally ran out of food. They were unable to provide for themselves and they were starving, literally starving to death. This includes the Israelites who were Jacob's family. So in Genesis 42, we find out that Jacob hears that there's grain in Egypt. So the Bible tells us that he then sends 10 of his 12 sons to make the long trek to Egypt to buy grain. Well, then another question came to mind. What happened when they got to Egypt? Who provided for their needs? In Genesis 45, we find out that it's none other than their brother, Joseph, one of the 12 sons who takes care of their needs. Another interesting fact is we're reading through there, and that leads to another question. So then why was Joseph, who is one of the 12 brothers, One of the sons of Jacob, why was he already in Egypt, as Exodus 1 told us? Well, it's funny you should ask, because Genesis 37, if you go back and read there, it says we find that Joseph was sold into slavery by his brothers. So essentially, some of you know the story. Joseph was his father's favorite son, and he was also a very prolific dreamer. And he had dreams, grandiose dreams, about his father and his brothers bowing down to him. His brothers, for some strange reason, didn't appreciate all of these dreams or the special code of many colors that his father gave to his favorite son. And so they conspired one day while they were out in the fields, and they threw Joseph into a pit. They sold him into slavery, thinking that was the end of their annoying little brother. Well, that leads us to another question, right? If Joseph was sold into slavery, then how did he wind up being the one with the power and the position to help his brothers when they come asking for help with the grain, when they're all starving to death? Well, in Genesis 41 again, verses 39 and 40, it, say, it states this, Then Pharaoh, and he was the king of Egypt, said to Joseph, Since God has shown you all of this, There is none so discerning and wise as you are. You shall be over my house and over all the people, and and all my people shall order themselves as you command. Only as regards the throne will I be greater than you. Another interesting turn of events, which leads us to another question. How did Joseph, who was a slave, rise to become now the second in command to Pharaoh, who was the king? Well, a little bit earlier in Genesis 41 reveals that Joseph interpreted a dream that Pharaoh had. 
a dream which prophesied about an upcoming famine, about an upcoming seven good years followed by seven very lean years. And so, But not only did uh, Joseph give clarity to Pharaoh about what was coming, he also proposed a plan for how to survive this famine and what they should do during these seven years. Well, that's great. But that also leads to another question. How did Joseph, who was a slave, wind up in Pharaoh's house interpreting his dream, right? This is a crazy story. So it was through a guy that he met in prison. More twists and turns, right? So according to Genesis 39, Joseph is in prison. Verse 21 and following says, But the Lord was with Joseph, and he showed him steadfast love, and he gave him favor in the sight of the keeper of the prison. And the keeper of the prison put Joseph in charge of all the prisoners who were in the prison. Whatever was done there, he was the one who did it. The keeper of the prison said, uh, paid no attention to anything that was in Joseph's charge because the Lord was with him. And whatever he did, the Lord made it to succeed. So then in Genesis 40, Joseph has two prisoners who are in his care. Remember, he's a prisoner, but he has these other prisoners that are in his care. And these two guys had been servants in the house of Pharaoh. One was a baker and one was a cupbearer. Well, on the same night, both men struggle with dreams. Joseph comes to check on them the next morning. He sees their concern, and he correctly interpreted those dreams for them. Just as Joseph predicted, it went really well for one and not so great for the other. The baker was executed, just as Joseph foretold. But then the cupbearer was restored to his place in Pharaoh's service. Years later, when Pharaoh was also plagued by a dream that no one could interpret, the cupbearer remembered Joseph and suggested to Pharaoh that he should talk to Joseph and bring him out of the prison to come and talk to him. But wait, so if... Joseph was a slave. Now we've figured out how he wound up in Pharaoh's household. But if he was a slave, how did he wind up in prison? Like, like this, his story is pretty insane. Oh, oddly enough, it was because he was falsely accused by Potiphar's wife. It was Potiphar, you want to go back to Genesis 39. Genesis 39 tells the story of Joseph as a slave in Potiphar's house. Beginning in verse 1, Genesis 39 says, Now Joseph had been brought down to Egypt, and Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh, the captain of the guard, an Egyptian, had brought him from the, uh, bought him from the Ishmaelites who had brought him down there. The Lord was with Joseph, and he became a successful man, and he was in the house of his Egyptian master. His master saw that the Lord was with him and that the Lord caused all that he did to succeed in his hands. So Joseph found favor in his sight and attended him, and he made him overseer of his house, and he put him in charge of all that he had. From the time that he made him an overseer in his house and over all that he had, the Lord blessed the Egyptian's house for, Jacob's, uh, for Joseph's sake. The blessing of the Lord was on all that he had in his house and in his field. So he left all that he had in Joseph's charge. And because of him, he had no concern about anything but the food that he ate. That all sounds great. Like, 
Here's Joseph. He winds up being a slave, but then he goes to work for this guy who honors him and blesses him, puts him in charge of everything that's going on in his house. But <clears throat> Potiphar's wife had other plans for Joseph. And you can read all about that, but basically what happened when Joseph did not consent to her advances, she accused him of attacking her. Potiphar comes in and he had no choice at that point but to throw Joseph in prison for attacking his wife. It's a crazy story as we go through this. How did the Israelites wind up moving to Egypt? That's how we started. But to dig into how they wound up going from where they were to now being strangers in the land of Egypt is a long story. But it all started when some jealous brothers got fed up, took matters into their own hands, and sold their brother into slavery. What ensued was years of really high highs for Joseph, followed by some incredibly low lows. He faced hardship after hardship. But the Bible tells us none of it was without purpose. Ultimately, we see God elevating him and even using him to rescue, to save the very brothers who had meant to do him harm. Joseph's story is full of suffering, betrayal, slavery, false accusations, and even prison. But through it all, we can see the hand of God at work. Now let's look back at the book of Exodus, since that is our topic for today. And in chapter 1, as we just read, we see the movement of the Israelites to Egypt in those first five verses. We know now that they originally came there in search of food and that God provided for them miraculously through the brother that they had wronged. Pharaoh, in his gratitude for what Joseph had done in rescuing his kingdom as well as the surrounding kingdoms, set them up with the very best of the land. And they had everything that they needed to be happy and productive and to live wonderful lives. So at the beginning of Exodus, we see the Israelites being blessed by God. They are God's chosen people, right? And they are fruitful and they multiply greatly in verses 6 and 7. But then we see things take a very serious turn in verses between, actually between verses 7 and 8. Joseph, who was their very unlikely protector, you would say, is now long gone. Now, a new Pharaoh has risen into power, and he's taken the throne. And according to verse 8, he does not even know who this Joseph guy is. So, he's not interested in protecting Joseph's family. When he sees this growing number of Israelites, he sees a bunch of immigrants whom he fears will become a threat to his power. And so, in verses 9 through 14... We see that under this Pharaoh, the Israelites are subjected to very harsh working conditions, and they become slaves with harsh taskmasters. But still, they multiply, and they just keep growing and growing. In verses 15 through 22, Pharaoh resorts to more drastic measures to stop their growth. He orders the midwives to kill their male babies. When that doesn't work, he then orders his soldiers to throw all baby boys into the Nile. He is determined 
that he is going to stop their growth and he's going to break their will. So he's coming at them with all guns, sending everything he has at them. This leads us to another question. One that maybe you've already thought about, but it's a big question. Why would God bring his people to Egypt and save their lives through Joseph and cause them to multiply to now allow them to be subjected to such hatred and brutality? It's a deep question. It's a good question. Where was God in all of this? Interestingly, if we dig back farther in the book of Genesis, all the way back to Genesis 15, we see that God actually foretold that this precise situation was going to happen originally when he made his covenant with Abraham. You can go there if you want to. Check me out. Uh, Genesis 15, verse 13 says, then the Lord said to Abram, know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs, and they will be servants there, and they will be afflicted for 400 years. So you mean to tell me that God planned all of this hardship, that he orchestrated it, that he allowed it to happen? I thought these were God's people, Right? Why would God allow such bad things to happen to them? Famine, relocation, slavery, harsh taskmasters, killing of their babies. These are questions we still struggle with today. Why does God allow bad things to happen to his people? Or the question, are hardships a sign of God's disfavor or disapproval of us? To help us answer these questions... Let's start by learning what we can from looking back over our shoulder. My dad always said, hindsight is 2020. Y'all have heard that? Um, I didn't know what that meant when I was a kid. Uh, I always thought that was a weird thing to say. Um, as I got older, I began to realize that life seems to come into greater focus as we look back to what has already happened. It's easier to see the lessons that way, what worked and what didn't. It's much harder to see with clarity what is happening now or what will happen in the future because we don't have the benefit of seeing the consequences and how things work. Interestingly enough, the Apostle Paul in the New Testament in Acts chapter, uh, sorry, Romans chapter 15, verse 4, he wrote this, For whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction, that through endurance and through the encouragement of the Scriptures, we might have hope. Hang on to that word, hope, because that's important. It's easy for us to look back in retrospect and see how God was at work. God allowed Joseph to be at enmity with his brothers so that they would sell him into slavery. God allowed Joseph to become a slave so that his master Potiphar would recognize the hand of God upon him and put him in charge of all of his household. God allowed Potiphar's wife to have Joseph wrongfully imprisoned so that God could work through Joseph to interpret the dreams of his fellow inmates. God allowed Joseph to be wrongfully imprisoned so that he would meet the guy who would eventually get him out of prison and give him an audience with Pharaoh. 
God allowed Joseph to be wrongfully imprisoned so that God could work through Joseph to interpret Pharaoh's dream and provide for the nation of Egypt and the surrounding nations during the famine. God allowed Joseph to be wrongfully imprisoned so that God could work through Joseph to bring forgiveness and physical salvation to his brothers and to his entire family. God allowed the Israelites to move to Egypt so that God could sustain them. And the promise that he made to Abraham and to all of his descendants, he could uphold. Salvation would come to the world through the descendants of Abraham, just as God said. Now, as we study the book of Exodus this year, we will see how God allowed the people to be enslaved, to be mistreated so that, and some of these questions I'm going to let Chad answer as we walk slowly through the book of Exodus. We'll be digging for those, but be watching and be listening as we go. As we begin to move through Exodus this year, let us keep in mind that we can learn from our 2020 hindsight. Three points this morning, three points that I want us to consider as we read uh, Exodus 1 as we consider the testimony of the Genesis narrative, but then also as we look forward uh, to what else we're going to learn through Exodus and as we consider our own lives. Number one, God is faithful. He is always working. God is faithful. He is always working. Number two, God will allow us to go through hardships. I don't like that one, but it's true. God will allow us to go through hardships. And then number three, God can and will use those hardships for his glory. God can and will use those hardships for his glory. Paul said in Romans 15 that there's a reason for hope. I told you to hang on to that word. The Apostle Paul who was a man who was incredibly well acquainted with suffering for the cause of Christ, also wrote in Romans chapter 8, verses 18 through 39. And if you want to, as you're jotting down points, those will remain on the screen. But also, if you want to flip over to uh, Romans chapter 8, you can, because these are some good verses for us to remember for context about our suffering and how God responds to that. Look at verse chapter Romans chapter 8. Verse 18 and following says, For I consider that the suffering of this present time are not worth comparing to the glory that is being revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, futility not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope. That, he, that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole, uh, the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit, we groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope, we are saved. Now, hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he sees? 
But if we hope for what we do not see, then we wait for it with patience. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. For we don't even know how to pray uh, or what to pray for as we ought. But the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit Because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who were called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. What then shall we say To these things, if God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, he will not also with him, he will not also with him graciously give us all things. Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is condemned? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised? who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of God? Shall tribulation, shall distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword? As it is written, for your sake, we are being killed all the day long. For your sake, we are being killed all the day long, and we are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. Verse 37 was my favorite verse growing up, specifically during high school as I stumbled across this verse, and it became like a a life verse for me. No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other thing in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Paul went on to say in very famous chapter, uh, Philippians chapter 4, verses 11 through 13, he says, For I have learned in whatever situation that I am to be content. I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance, and need. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Chad mentioned last week as he prepared us for this sermon series by reading through this entire book of Exodus, he was struck by how many times he came across the reality that we need God. Last week he said to us, and I quote, The book of Exodus is shouting at the top of her lungs, you need God. You need God to get out of slavery. You need God to cross the Red Sea. You need God to have food and water. You need God to establish order. You need God in all things. And at the end of this year, he said, when we bring this book to a close, his desire was that we as a church will become intimately acquainted with this reality in our lives, that we need God. You may be going through difficulty or hardship or suffering in your life right now. You may feel like God is distant 
or that he's not paying attention. You may wonder if it's even possible for God to redeem your situation. The book of Exodus and the words of the Apostle Paul and really the whole of the Bible reminds us that God is faithful. He is always working. Even when we don't see him or we can't tell that he's doing anything, John 3 reminds us that God loved us so much that he was willing to send his only son to suffer willingly on our behalf to offer us the opportunity to be made right with him. He took the suffering that we deserved upon himself and he died on our behalf. There's no doubt that there were many who were watching what was going on at that time and wondering what on earth has God up to? How is this even possible? How could God allow his son to face such a cruel and horrible death? How could he face such suffering? And so number two, we will face hardships in life. It's guaranteed. Jesus tells us we should be prepared. And just as Jesus suffered, we can all expect to suffer. Truth is, our hardships may be our own fault. But not all hardships are the result of sin. Sometimes we face hardships due to other people's sins. Or we may be facing hardships or suffering so that God can work through those hardships and suffering to do something that he wants to do or to make us into who he wants us to be as he transforms us through those hardships. You can look at the life of Joseph. Look at the life of the children of Israel and see how God has used those hardships in their lives to prepare them for what was coming next. He used that situation that they were in to make sure that they were ready for what was going to happen next. They had no idea that there was going to come a day that they were going to be in famine and going to be starving to death. And they certainly had no idea that selling their brother into slavery years before would have ever wound up God redeeming that situation and bringing about forgiveness and restoration in their lives and even healing in their lives. And so, point number three, God can and will use those hardships for his glory. As we see God, the work that God did in and through the Israelites and in, throughout the book of Genesis and Exodus, we're reminded that we can have hope even in the midst of suffering. And as we see the glory of God revealed through the resurrection of Jesus, we know that God works all things together for his glory. What? is really ultimately for our good as well, for those who believe. And so I want to invite you to stand uh, with me now and respond to what we've heard from God's word this morning. If you don't know God and you have not repented of your sins and have not submitted to his lordship in your life, then your suffering is without hope. Do you want to find meaning in life? Do you want to find the, and get to know the one who holds the whole world and all of history, past, present, and future in his hands? Then today, right now, I would encourage you to call out to him. If you would like to talk to someone about that, 
and find out more about this God and the forgiveness that he offers and the hope that we have even in the midst of trials and hardships and suffering in life, then there will be uh, friends of mine right over here in this room uh, to my left, your right, and they would love to talk to you uh, during this time or after the service or pray with you about any of those things as, as you just want somebody to, to pray with you about that. But if you're a follower of Jesus already, then I hope this message today has been an encouragement to you, reminding us all of the sovereignty and the faithfulness of God. You can trust him. You can live with all the hardships and the sufferings and things that life throws at us, and you can trust that he is working things out for his glory and ultimately for his good. The song that we're about to sing is a great reminder about our need for God. It's based on a passage from John 15. And as we sing these words, I pray that they would resonate in your hearts and in your minds and that our spirits would be renewed and rejuvenated as we spend time worshiping and praising the one who is faithful and who takes care of us and is continuing to work all things out for his glory.